If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, as I kind of already alluded to, the book of Hebrews. If you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, this is a big day for us, and, and it was funny, before the 9 a.m. service, uh, one of my friends in the back is like, it's, the, it's a big day, right? And I'm, I kind of like got rattled. I'm like, oh, he's like, Melchizedek. And I'm like, oh yeah, like we have seen Melchizedek three times in Hebrews, and every time we have seen him up until this point, we go, we'll talk about him in a little bit, okay? Like we, don't, we, we didn't unpack any about Melchizedek until uh, today. And so I've got to be honest with you, I was going to try, my plan three weeks ago uh, was to try to take all 28 verses, so all of chapter 7 about Melchizedek uh, today. Um, yeah, about that. Uh, we're going to have to split it up a little bit, and you'll, you'll see why. I don't make it very far. So stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Uh, we're going to make it through eight verses. Just, just letting you know, we're going to make it through eight verses this morning. If you don't have your copy of God's word, it'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. I love that some of you are geeked up about Melchizedek because I am. Um, so uh, here we go. Uh, but let me be clear up front and kind of catch you up. Uh, Hebrews is a book all about Jesus. Okay. So yeah, we're going to talk about Melchizedek, but really more than Melchizedek, we're going to talk even more about Jesus. And particularly the book of Hebrews is a book about Jesus um, showing or revealing that Jesus is greater He's better than anything else and anyone else on the planet, including Melchizedek, okay? And so anything we would want to put our hope in, anything we'd want to put our stock in, the, the writer of Hebrews is going, no, Jesus is so much better. And, and there are a couple ways that you can show something is better, right? A better way, right? We, we do this as if you're a parent, we do this all the time. Like we have different ways of like tactics of telling our kids, no, you should go this way and not this way or this way. Yeah. Um, one, uh, the author of Hebrews has shown us uh, up until this point that he's employed is a warning, right? He's given uh, up to this point about three warnings. He'll give five in the whole book, but three warnings of like, don't go down this path. If you go down this path, or, or be careful not to drift, okay? That, that's a warning. Uh, another one is um, by discipline, right? You can say, hey, you did this, therefore there is a consequence or a discipline, and here, here's what the result of that uh, will be. That will get more so, you'll see that in Hebrews chapter 12, a little bit about the discipline of, of the Lord. 
And then there is a, and I think this is probably the most powerful one, it's an employed most in the book of Hebrews, and even in our parenting, probably this is, you would see, this is the most powerful one, is that what the writer of Hebrews does is he, put out, he puts out before uh, the original audience and us hope, like a joy. Like, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that when you actually live your life surrendered to King Jesus, you will actually understand and see that he's better than everything else. He, they, they put before you like these gospel joys of like what happens when we actually realign or reorient our lives completely around Jesus. Like this is the fruit of that. This is the joy of that. I mean, this was the end of uh, Hebrews chapter six, right? We, we covered that a couple weeks ago where it says, listen, you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul and his name is Jesus. Like you can be confident in the salvation you have. You can be confident in the things he calls you to and, and, and away from like he is good. We just sang it, right? He's good, and he does good, um, one for his glory, but also for his children, you as a son or daughter. And so there's this like encouragement in that. And so Hebrews 7 is a, an encouragement um, as well, but on the heels of chapter 6, um, probably what the, 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 the church or the audience, original audience, they would have probably been asking like, how, how is Jesus our sure and steadfast anchor? Great question, right? Like, how is he that? How is Jesus that? And look at this, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. If you have it, you, you can see it in your Bible. It'll be on the screen behind me. Here's how, how the writer responds. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, right? This is after that anchor comment in verse 19. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's how. And everybody goes, thanks for nothing, right? Like, what do you mean he's a forever priest after the order of Melchizedek? It requires something of us, right? It requires for us to understand what in the world it means to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is why we have to pay attention and dig a little deeper on who Melchizedek is. And it is going to be powerful and profound if we really let the Holy Spirit do the work. And now hear me, I understand today is kind of jumping off the high dive into the deep end. But this, in fact, is what Hebrews chapter 6 told us to do. Remember that warning? He goes, listen, by now, you should be not on milk anymore. You should be teachers. And listen, there's nothing wrong with spiritual milk. What's a problem is when you stay on spiritual milk. Meaning when you don't kind of wade out of the shallow end to the deeper things of God. And what the writer of Hebrews would say is like, listen, you need to wade a little deeper. And he knows that going, I'm going to talk about Melchizedek here in another chapter, and you're going to need to understand who he is, right? So we're going to kind of thrust ourselves into the deep end, all right, if you will. So go there and maybe like, you're like, whoa, I just came to faith like, you know, last week and all this. Like, hey, go with us. Some of you you, you've never heard of Melchizedek and you've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. And so let's, let's go a little deeper. Let's, let's figure out who, who Melchizedek is. And so I want to start um, maybe explaining something that might help you in how you read your Bible, okay? Melchizedek is only found in our Old Testament twice. Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. He's actually found more in Hebrews than he is in our entire Old Testament, Okay. And, and, and Melchizedek is something in our Bible called a type, okay? There are types all over, particularly your Old Testament, okay? Now, let me explain to you what a type is. Don't, 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 don't fade off going to sleep yet. A type is this, an Old Testament person, 
practice, ceremony, or religious instrument that has a counterpart, okay? So the type has a counterpart, if you will, an antitype. And that doesn't mean against. It just means a fulfillment, antitype. In the New Testament. So a type is something that you and I will see in our Old Testament that has the substance, if you will, the fulfillment in the New Testament. For example, how many of you get really like super confused when you go through like the book of, let's say, Leviticus? And you're like, there is a lot of blood here. There's a lot of animals. You know, like what is going on here? Okay, can't explain everything, but let's take uh, the, the cute little baby lamb, okay? The spotless lamb that has to be sacrificed, right? Now, that lamb, for the sins of the people, like that lamb, there's nothing special about that lamb. Like you don't worship that lamb. It's a type. It's a type pointing to something needed, greater, or fulfilled later on. So these lambs, these spotless offerings, these blood sacrifices are offered as a type of what will be fulfilled later on, okay? Let's take another one, another animal, right? A lot of animal lovers here. A goat, right? In our Old Testament, you will see this, this goat, and it's known as the scapegoat. Yes, it's the same reason we get that word, a scapegoat. And the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, confessing his sins and the sins of the people. And here's what they would do with that scapegoat. They would drive it out into the wilderness as a picture or a type saying, listen, our sins are carried away. Our sins are driven, delivered from us, Okay. Now, fast forward a little bit. Type needs an anti-type in the New Testament. That anti-type is Jesus when John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, rolls up on the scene and he sees Jesus with his eyes. What's the first thing that rolls out of his mouth? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb and the goat, fulfilled The type fulfilled, the shadow is now substance in Jesus Christ, okay? Like some of you are getting that. Melchizedek, hear me, is the same. He is a type. He's a type. He's a shadow that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. The type is never the reality, right? Nothing special about the lamb, nothing special about the goat, nothing special, extraordinarily special about Melchizedek. The point is that it's pointing to someone or something greater. This happens all the time with us as believers, even what we hold here, right? These things, the bread and the juice, they are types, right? There's nothing special about this. We know there's nothing special about this little wafer in this chalice that you hold, right? It's what it represents. It's what is embodied in that that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Water baptism, another beautiful example, right? Of where this is is a picture. It points to the death, burial, and resurrection that happens. That we're raised, the Bible says, to walk in newness of life. So let me be very clear today as we unpack this. Melchizedek is not the same as Jesus. Okay? Melchizedek is not God. Okay? We don't sing songs to Melchizedek, right? That would be really hard anyway, right? I was talking to the 9 a.m., and I'm like, can you imagine having to do with Melchizedek? All I could get is what the heck, you know, to rhyme with it. Then someone, get this, in the 9 a.m., they're really sharp in the 9 a.m. Then someone's like, you missed it, right? Like, and, and, and he said, uh, Melchizedek the halls in this season. And I was like, Mike, you're a genius. And so I told him I'd share that. But uh, anyway, we're off, we're off topic. We're way off topic. Melchizedek's not God. He is not Jesus, right? He is pointing to someone greater than himself, and that is Christ. 
Let's be clear on that. Now, what I want to drive home this morning is how. How does Melchizedek point to, how does this type, Melchizedek, point to the greater, to Jesus? And so we'll see how far we make it in these eight verses. See, aren't you glad I didn't go to verse 28? All right. First things first, who in the world is Melchizedek? He is, we got to just let the cat out of the He is a mysterious guy. Like I said, we don't know very much about him, biblically speaking. There are some more historical writings on him. I won't even pull those in uh, just because I want to stay true to the text that Genesis 14 is the only place where we get an extended version of him. And then, like I said, in Psalm 110. So let me start with Genesis 14, describing the scene with Melchizedek. So Abraham um, has just found out that his nephew Lot and his tribe or his 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 uh, group of people and his Abraham's family have just been taken into captivity. Um, th- at this time, these kings are kind of building allies and overcoming each of these other tribes and these little nations. Well, there's one king in particular in Genesis uh, 13 and 14 that's kind of overwhelming and taking up everybody. And out of Sodom, where Lot was, that nation that was overtaken, somebody escapes captivity and comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, like, and, and he's Abram at this time, I know, but he's still Abraham. He comes and he says, listen, they've taken Lot, and they've taken your family, and, 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 and they've plundered everything. And essentially, Abraham goes, uh, not on my watch, they don't. And so he, he rallies 300 men and takes him into that nation, and they wage war, and they win, and they take all the plunder and the families, and they come back. And as they're coming back, headed back to Abraham's land, his, he's intersected, if you will, by Melchizedek. And that's Genesis chapter 14, 18 through verse 20. This is the only scene where we see Melchizedek. So he is, he is a, he, he's a king, and he's a priest in the nation of, of Salem, Okay. So that story was written by Moses in the book of Genesis about 2000 BC, okay, around that. Now, fast forward to the next time in your Old Testament that Melchizedek comes up is a thousand years later by King David when he's writing a messianic psalm in Psalm 110, okay, verse 4. And David coins the phrase, look at it here. He coins the phrase that we already heard in Hebrews. He says, the Lord has sworn sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David doesn't know who the Messiah is going to be, right? But what he's saying is, I know that our Messiah is going to be from the forever priest line of Melchizedek, like Melchizedek. So 2000 BC, a thousand years later, then roughly a thousand years more, the book of Hebrews is written. And now Hebrews goes, oh, David saw a type in Melchizedek, a type that would point to the Messiah. And so just as David, he wrung out all the type language there in Psalm 110, the author of Hebrews is going, no, 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 we know the fulfillment of the type. We know the shadow that Melchizedek was. The substance is Jesus. And let me explain to you this substance. Let me explain to you the weight and the beauty and the power that comes from this King Messiah, this priest forever. I love this, and they absolutely ring these two, uh, Genesis 14, those, those three verses, and, and Psalm 110, they absolutely ring them out of all their gospel beauty. And that's what we're going to see this morning, how the substance, uh, how the shadow gives way to the substance here a thousand years later after King David made the announcement. And so the first connection we see between Melchizedek and this, and we're going to focus, all my points fo- focus on Jesus, is this. He's wanting to see that Jesus is the greater king of righteousness and peace. Remember, the audience in Hebrews is almost entirely a Jewish Christians. 
that Jesus is the greater king of righteousness and peace. Now, pick up your Bible again. Hebrews 7. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Now, that combination is unique. That Melchizedek's kingly and priestly uh, kind of dual roles there is very unique, but not unique to Jesus. But let's look at his kingship. And so this is down at the end of verse 2, really middle of verse 2. It says, he, that's Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The thing I want you to pick up here is the order. By first, he means the first thing you need to see in Melchizedek being fulfilled in the substance of Christ is this. By his name, he is the king of righteousness. Literally, Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. That's what the translation Melchizedek actually means, his name. Then notice it says, and he is also king of Salem. That is, there's another, another, another phrase or title here. He is also the king of peace. Okay? King of righteousness is his name. King of peace. Now, the, the, where he is, Salem. That's the, 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 the name that preceded Jerusalem. Salem became Jerusalem, okay? The word Salem means peace. So notice Melchizedek, his personal name. Who he is, is what? Righteousness. My king is righteousness. What he rules over is peace. Now, the order really matters here because I, I want to make a, 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 and I'll back it up biblically. I want to make a very powerful statement here. That peace is impossible apart from righteousness. Peace in our world, right? The, the Christmas songs that we sing about peace is impossible apart from righteousness. Peace in your family is impossible apart from righteousness. Peace in your marriage, impossible apart from righteousness. Peace, peace in your life, your personal life, is impossible apart from righteousness. And whether you're a believer here or you're a non-believer here, here's a, a common theme I know about us, is that all of our hearts, we are actually longing and searching for peace in some sort of fashion or another, one, one way or another. We're searching for peace. And what I'm submitting to you is this, that peace will never be found apart from righteousness. He said, Kyle, you better back that up biblically. Thank you for asking. Let's go. Let's look at it. Isaiah. And the effect of righteousness will be what? Peace, that's right. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Go to the next verse. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Oh, that you would have listened. Like this idea of righteousness in, in the Old Testament. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You say, Kyle, come on, man. Like that's Old Testament, right? They had the law, all those things. Okay, let's go New Testament. Romans. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of the order matters. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? Right. Man, you guys are better than the 9 a.m. All right. Like, yes. They were like, I don't know. Righteousness. Righteousness makes for it. Righteousness precedes peace. In four and a half years, we will get to this in Hebrews chapter 12. All right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true, right? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That righteousness yields peace. You see, Christianity is not um, obe an obedience optional 
faith. You see, you don't get to decide, I don't get to decide whether or not I'm going to walk in obedience and righteousness. Like God is some indifferent God to uh, unrighteousness. Like he's just, just, just accommodating of all activity and all behavior from anyone. One of the things that I love from the letters from Timothy is that he tells us that the word of God, it will rebuke us and reproof, like all those things, but it, it, in its effect, it trains us in all righteousness. So the word of God, when it's taking its full effect in our lives, it, those two things will happen. It, it will cut to my heart. It will rebuke some of the things that I'm orienting my life around, the sin struggles and the patterns in, in my life, and it will train me in righteousness. Why? Because righteousness is the way to true peace. And so listen, if, it's not, if the word of God is not having that effect on you, then you need to really evaluate what's taking place. The ears, do you have ears to hear? Are you listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying through the word of God? Because God gives peace through righteousness. And some of you are saying, okay, Kyle, you're hammering this home. How do I get righteousness? How, how do I get righteousness? If that's the, the doorway to peace. Well, let me start with how you don't get righteousness. You don't get righteousness through moral behavior. You don't get it through being merely religious. And what I mean by that is that, that, that we will never come to God with our arms full of all of our good works and our righteousness and our good deeds and go, okay, God, here, here's, here's my religious resume. Now, now, now you give me peace. Here's my righteousness. I mean, e- even saying that is like offensive, right? And how to talk to God. And, and many of you are like, yeah, that's offensive. But functionally, that's how we oftentimes live our lives. I, I've done all this. I'm doing all this. I'm not doing this. Therefore, give me the peace that you promise. See, Paul in Romans um, 3, verse 10, he makes this statement. He says, there's none righteous. No, not one. You're like, Kyle, is this a cruel joke? Like, like, you just said that righteousness precedes peace. So are you telling me that peace is an impossibility? No. Hear me. Righteousness is not first behavior, meaning what you do or don't do. Righteousness is first something that happens to you and me. That's what Paul is saying, right? This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer in Jesus, here's, we, call, we all have the same common story, right? That the good news of Jesus Christ hit our ears and we put our faith and trust in him. And what hit our ears was this, is that we're not saved by works. We're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our good deeds. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And here's what happens. This great, beautiful exchange happens where our unrighteousness, instead the Bible says we are clothed with his righteousness. So it's something from outside of us, Jesus applied to us, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And what we're clothed in is his righteousness. Then guess Guess what? That righteousness that we're clothed in in Christ kicks open the door to peace, and now we can understand peace. But righteousness is not something we strive for. Okay, we'll, we'll attain righteousness, then we'll get peace. No, you receive Christ, and in Christ you are clothed in his righteousness, and that opens the door to peace. He's the king of righteousness and of peace. Philippians 3 eight and nine. See if this, see if that collision with grace 
if this would describe your life. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There it is. Righteousness comes to you through faith in God alone, period. Righteousness is not something we manufacture. Righteousness is something we receive by faith because it comes from Christ. All right. Next shadow that's about to be illuminated or fulfilled in Christ is this, is that Jesus, by Melchizedek, Jesus is greater than Abraham. And not only is Jesus greater than Abraham, this text says, it in fact says Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And for, like, for us, it doesn't like land. Like you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, he is. For a Jewish audience who were steeped in this tradition, they would have been like, hold up. Like this is Father Abraham, right? They didn't have the cheesy song back then. Okay, we do, all right? But they're like, this is, this is our guy. This is our, our, our patriarch, And what the book of Hebrews is driving home to them and to us is this is, no, you have to see that Jesus is still better. He's better than your patriarch. He's better than than the person who God gave to them to imitate. He's going, however, there will be people in every generation, there will be people in all parts of time that the Lord gives for us to imitate, but not worship. We tend to fall into the trap of worshiping the person. The man, the wo- whoever's in front of us who just kind of wows us, the most charismatic, the lead, whatever it is, right? That's even in the church. Celebrity pastor culture is like, wow, you were, no. We worship Jesus alone, period. We don't worship Melchizedek. We don't worship Abraham. We worship Jesus. And so here, here's where I want us to, to land in this picture of how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He gives two ways that Melchizedek is greater than than Abraham. The first one is this, that Melchizedek, the king and priest, blesses Abraham, blesses him. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. Hebrews 7 said, listen, the the inferior doesn't doesn't bless the, 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 the superior, right? If that were the case, Melchizedek would have never done that to Abraham. If Abraham would have been superior, he would have never blessed him. The second thing is this, that Abraham recognizes Melchizedek's superiority and his authority. And what does he do? He gives him a tithe. He gives him the 10% of all the spoils, okay? So this is really profound on even Abraham's part, okay? This is Abraham recognizing his authority and his rank as well. And it's below Melchizedek, right? Abraham didn't assert himself to go, yeah, hey, I am Father Abraham, right? That cheesy song, it will be about me, right? You're Melchizedek. Ain't nobody singing about you, okay? But he recognizes something here. And so he gives him a tenth of everything. Two two things. Where do we see the intersection of Melchizedek and Abraham in Genesis 14? So uh, Abraham has just plundered those nations, one, bringing his family back. He's on his road to his homeland. And Melchizedek really unsolicited, not really, like unsolicited, intersects Abraham and blesses him. Abraham didn't ask for it. Abraham didn't go, hey, set up a meeting with the king of Salem. Abraham's coming through. 
No, it was out of nowhere. He is blessed by this priest and this king. That, hear me, that is a picture of salvation. That is a picture of where Christ intersects our life unsolicited by us. The first advent was unsolicited by you and me. However, God chose to send his son to us to save us, to seek and save that which is lost. This is a picture of salvation. This is a picture, if, you, if your life has collided with grace, it was, it was because the sovereign hand of God moved and he blessed you. He saved you. Let's make no mistake about it, that this is about spiritual blessing. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then what flows from Abraham? He gives everything. First, he gives to Melchizedek, particularly, 10%. He's like, oh, it's tithe. I can't escape it in this section. Like seven times in 10 verses, either give or tithe is mentioned. Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek after the blessing. Now let me, um, yeah, I got time. Now, the prosperity gospel garbage, okay? I said that very kindly, okay? It says this, you want a blessing from God? You want something from God? You want to evoke the hand of God? Here's what you do. You write that check. You give it. You give it. The blessing will flow. Then, then the blessing will flow. No, here's what we say as people who believe in the gospel, that the blessing has flowed to us in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Then we respond. Then we respond. We say, Lord, all I have is yours. Everything that I am is yours, right? It's not, oh, give it first, and then God will respond to your giving. No, it's not like that at all. He blesses you first, unsolicited. He saves you. He redeems you. That it's out of that heart of generosity we go, Lord, you own it all anyway. You gave it all to me. Abraham's going, the Lord secured the victory. He allowed us to do this. Then I get blessed by Melchizedek. Oh, it's all yours. Side note here, Genesis 14, if you actually read that text, Abraham doesn't get rich off winning this battle. He could have. He could have. But here's what he does is he gives 10% to Melchizedek. He, t- he literally, it says, he reimburses himself, takes his family just with food that he used for the war. And then he leaves all of the other plunder from these nations with the king of Sodom. You want to talk about a guy who understood that the Lord owns it all. It's Abraham in Genesis 14. So for us, we are talking again, yes, here, a spiritual blessing that our hearts respond to with obedience and generosity. And, and we can argue about whether or not a tithe is for the New Testament believer. If you've been here, you know where we fall as that as a community. We believe 10% is probably the minimum that the gospel states. But I will say this, abundantly clear from this passage and hundreds of others in the gospel, that generous giving, generosity with the finances God has given you and given me is a hallmark demonstration of the supremacy of God and the authority of God in our lives. Notice I didn't say your money, your finances. God owns it all and God has given it to you, entrusted it to you to steward it for his glory. And we give Not so that God will bless us, but we give because we first have been blessed and given to by God at an infinite level in Christ. And then we give incredibly and undeservedly back to the Lord what is already his. That's the heart of generosity right there. So don't tell me you submit to the authority of Jesus, that he's everything, that he's supreme, and you are not financially generous toward God. If that is not true in your life, then all the rest of that is probably just talk. 
That's too convicting. Let's, let's keep going here. The other thing that Melchizedek illuminates is this, is that Jesus is greater than all the other priests. All the other priests. Right? This is a Jewish audience, Christian Jewish audience, that Jesus is better than all the other priests. And, and he, he gives two reasons for logic here to this mostly Jewish audience that typically doesn't resonate with us. But the first is this, that we don't see in Melchizedek any genealogy, this is what it says in Hebrews, any genealogy that would put him as a priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not, he's not from the tribe of Levi. It doesn't exist. But, but he comes and he is established by God as a priest. Guess who else was not from the tribe of Levi? Jesus, our priest, right? Our great high priest was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, okay? However, it was God appointing him like Melchizedek to be a priest forever, all right? And the second thing is this, that they, about Melchizedek, and I lo- love this, they're essentially going, hey, we also don't know much about Melchizedek. They're going, with Melchizedek, there, there, there was no beginning and no end. And that's not saying that Melchizedek is eternal. They're just going, hey, we don't know his origin of birth, and we don't know when he died. Here's what we know about all of the other Old Testament priests from the, the, the Levitical tribe. We know when they started when they were born. And we know when their term ended, okay? Because why? They died. But like Melchizedek, not understanding where he came from and not understanding when he died, not knowing that, it goes, listen, there is one who is forever. There is a high priest who has come, who is before all time and will be through all time forever. That when, 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 when the first advent came in Bethlehem, Jesus was eternally old at that moment, okay? He has been forever. You say, Big deal, huge deal. It's a huge deal because if Jesus is temporal, if there is a beginning and there is an end, then all that we just read in Hebrews 6 about our sure and steadfast anchor, they don't hold. At some point, they give away. But the writer of Hebrews is going, no, like the order of Melchizedek, there is no beginning and there is no end with Christ. He's eternal forever. It will always be. So here's the deal. You can take what he says to the bank. You can be sure that every promise that Jesus gives will come to pass both in your life and in this world that he has been eternally ruling and reigning over forever. Forever. And the last point, we do have to go to Genesis 14 for this one. And I want you to hold in your hand this. This is about as illustrated as my sermons will ever get. And this hit me um, bright and early this morning. Keith can attest, like I had to come in and add another point. Um, Genesis 14, when Melchizedek comes to Abraham to bless him, the victory has just happened with the war and the other kingdoms. He's coming and he's blessing him. And what he holds in his hands, look at this, Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out what? Bread and wine. To bless. To say there's been a victory. There is now a blessing. And some of you are making the connection that when Jesus said, listen, there is going to be a war that I wage against sin. And what's required to wage that war is that I lay down my life for you. And he announced that war 
by going, my broken body and my shed blood is how I'm going to go to war for you. But then he goes, but there will be a victory. And every time you take the bread and the wine together as believers, you're announcing my victory. That Jesus is celebrating a far greater victory than over some tribes and some kingdoms. He's announcing a far greater victory with bread and wine. So listen, as believers, when we take these elements, what we are celebrating is a victory on our behalf through Christ. Melchizedek and his blessing, that was a shadow of the true bread and wine that we would taste this morning. A greater victory. All right, let's pray. Father, God, I pray that you might use, God, this moment in this gathering with your Holy Spirit, speaking and stirring to change us, God, as we go from here as a people. Father, may Christ be ever before us, ever with us and ever in us. So Lord, I pray that he would be, I thank you in our lives. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have been speaking victory and salvation since the beginning of time. God, I love you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.